Greetings, listeners. Once again, it is Black Clock Audio Tales. Week 4, Jules Verne. Master of the World. And uh, this, I, I, I tried to find episodes that uh, Ken Height recommended last week, but I couldn't find any of those, so I went with the sequel to uh, Robor the Conqueror. So that is Master of the World. And apparently you can listen to this without hearing the first one, and it, you know, you, it's, it's uh, unnecessary, so don't worry about it. And yeah. And as always, this, this episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com and founditemclothing.com. Check out the new Highland Cow Slipper. If you like woolly things, if you like bully things, check out the Highland Cow Slipper. Also, all kinds of slippers they have available of all kinds of different animals and activities that people enjoy or food items, things like that. You'll, you'll find it amazing. BunnySlippers.com. Look for it in the show notes. And let's not forget all of the wonderful people who make this show possible. Besides BunnySlippers.com, you! Yes, you! You can go to PayPal.me slash P-G-T-T-C-M and donate $5 to help keep the show going. You can also go to the shop and get one of our t-shirts. You can, I don't know, um, tell your friends about it. Subscribe to it. Um, rate it five stars on uh, whatever pod streaming service you listen to, whether it be Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you go. I use Podbean, but that's me. Thank you so much, and let's get going with this. But uh, one thing I wanted to try before we go any further. Alexa, diminish lights 50%. Alexa, increase volume by 50%. Alexa, how tall is Jeff Goldblum? Alexa, delete all past episodes of Babylon 5. Okay, on with the show. Alexa, Self-destruct in three seconds. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne Chapter 1 What Happened in the Mountains If I speak of myself in this story, it is because I have been deeply involved in its startling events, events doubtless among the most extraordinary which this twentieth century will witness. Sometimes I even ask myself if all this has really happened, if its pictures dwell in truth in my memory, and not merely in my imagination. In my position as head inspector in the Federal Police Department at Washington, urged on moreover by the desire, which has always been very strong in me, to investigate and understand everything which is mysterious, I naturally became much interested in these remarkable occurrences. And as I have been employed by the government in various important affairs and secret missions since I was a mere lad, it also happened very naturally that the head of my department placed in my charge this astonishing investigation, wherein I found myself wrestling with so many impenetrable mysteries. In the remarkable passages of the recital, it is important that you should believe my word. 
For some of the facts I can bring no other testimony than my own. If you do not wish to believe me, so be it. I can scarce believe it all myself. The strange occurrences began in the western part of our great American state of North Carolina. There, deep amid the Blue Ridge Mountains, rises the crest called the Great Erie. Its huge rounded form is distinctly seen from the little town of Morganton on the Catawba River, and still more clearly as one approaches the mountains by way of the village of Pleasant Garden. Why the name of Great Erie was originally given this mountain by the people of the surrounding region, I am not quite sure. It rises rocky and grim and inaccessible, and under certain atmospheric conditions has a peculiarly blue and distant effect. But the idea one would naturally get from the name is of a refuge for birds of prey, eagles, condors, vultures, the home of vast numbers of the feathered tribes, wheeling and screaming above peaks beyond the reach of man. Now the great Erie did not seem particularly attractive to birds. On the contrary, the people of the neighborhood began to remark that on some days when birds approached its summit, they mounted still further, circled high above the crest, and then flew swiftly away, troubling the air with harsh cries. Why then the name Great Erie? Perhaps the mount might better have been called a crater, for in the centre of those steep and rounded walls there might well be a huge deep basin. Perhaps there might even lie within their circuit a mountain lake, such as exists in other parts of the Appalachian mountain system, a lagoon fed by the rain and the winter snows. In brief, was not this the site of an ancient volcano, one which had slept through ages, but whose inner fires might yet reawake? Might not the great Erie reproduce in its neighborhood the violence of Mount Krakatoa, or the terrible disaster of Mount Pele? If there were indeed a central lake, was there not danger that its waters, penetrating the strata beneath, would be turned to steam by the volcanic fires, and tear their way forth in a tremendous explosion, deluging the fair plains of Carolina with an eruption such as that of 1902 in Martinique? Indeed, with regard to this last possibility, there have been certain symptoms recently observed which might well be due to volcanic action. Smoke had floated above the mountain, and once the country folk passing near had heard subterranean noises, unexplainable rumblings. A glow in the sky had crowned the height at night. When the wind blew the smoky cloud eastward toward Pleasant Garden, a few cinders and ashes drifted down from it. And finally, one stormy night, pale flames, reflected from the clouds above the summit, cast upon the district below a sinister, warning light. In presence of these strange phenomena, it is not astonishing that the people of the surrounding district became seriously disquieted. And to the disquiet was joined an imperious need of knowing the true condition of the mountain. The Carolina newspapers had flaring headlines, THE MYSTERY OF GREAT Erie. They asked if it was not dangerous to dwell in such a region. Their articles aroused curiosity and fear curiosity among those who, being in no danger themselves, were interested in the disturbance 
merely as a strange phenomenon of nature, fear in those who were likely to be the victims if a catastrophe actually occurred. Those more immediately threatened were the citizens of Morganton, and even more the good folk of Pleasant Garden, and the hamlets and farms yet closer to the mountain. Assuredly it was regrettable that mountain climbers had not previously attempted to ascend to the summit of the Great Erie. The cliffs of rock which surrounded it had never been scaled. Perhaps they might offer no path by which even the most daring climber could penetrate to the interior. Yet, if a volcanic eruption menaced all the western region of the Carolinas, then a complete examination of the mountain was become absolutely necessary. Now before the actual ascent of the crater, with its many serious difficulties, was attempted, there was one way which offered an opportunity of reconnoitring the interior, without clambering up the precipices. In the first days of September of that memorable year, a well-known aeronaut named Wilker came to Morganton with his balloon. By waiting for a breeze from the east, he could easily rise in his balloon and drift over the Great Erie. There, from a safe height above, he could search with a powerful glass into its deeps. Thus he would know if the mouth of a volcano really opened amid the mighty rocks. This was the principal question. If this were settled, it would be known if the surrounding country must fear any eruption at some period more or less distant. The ascension was begun according to the program suggested. The wind was fair and steady, the sky clear. The morning clouds were disappearing under the vigorous rays of the sun. If the interior of the Great Erie was not filled with smoke, the aeronaut would be able to search with his glass its entire extent. If the vapors were rising, he no doubt could detect their source. The balloon rose at once to a height of fifteen hundred feet, and there rested almost motionless for a quarter of an hour. Evidently the east wind, which was brisk upon the surface of the earth, did not make itself felt at that height. Then, unlucky chance, the balloon was caught in an adverse current and began to drift toward the east. Its distance from the mountain chain rapidly increased. Despite all the efforts of the aeronaut, the citizens of Morganton saw the balloon disappear on the wrong horizon. Later they learned that it had landed in the neighborhood of Raleigh, the capital of North Carolina. This attempt having failed, it was agreed that it should be tried again under better conditions. Indeed, fresh rumblings were heard from the mountain, accompanied by heavy clouds and wavering glimmerings of light at night. Folk began to realize that the Great Erie was a serious and perhaps imminent source of danger. Yes, the entire country lay under the threat of some seismic or volcanic disaster. During the first days of April of that year, these more or less vague apprehensions turned to actual panic. The newspapers gave prompt echo to the public terror. The entire district between the mountains and Morganton was sure that an eruption was at hand. The night of the 4th of April, the good folk of Pleasant Garden were awakened by a sudden uproar. They thought that the mountains were falling upon them. They rushed from their houses, ready for instant flight, fearing to see open before them some immense abyss, engulfing the farms and villages for miles around. 
the night was very dark. A weight of heavy clouds pressed down upon the plain. Even had it been day, the crest of the mountains would have been invisible. In the midst of this impenetrable obscurity, there was no response to the cries which arose from every side. Frightened groups of men, women, and children groped their ways along the black roads in wild confusion. From every quarter came the screaming voices, It is an earthquake! It is an eruption! Whence comes it? From the Great Erie! Into Morganton sped the news that stones, lava, ashes were raining down upon the country. Shrewd citizens of the town, however, observed that if there were an eruption, the noise would have continued and increased. The flames would have appeared above the crater, or at least their lurid reflections would have penetrated the clouds. Now, even these reflections were no longer seen. If there had been an earthquake, the terrified people saw that at least their houses had not crumbled beneath the shock. It was possible that the uproar had been caused by an avalanche, the fall of some mighty rock from the summit of the mountains. An hour passed without other incident. A wind from the west, sweeping over the long chain of the Blue Ridge, set the pines and the hemlocks wailing on the higher slopes. There seemed no new cause for panic, and folk began to return to their houses. All, however, awaited impatiently the return of day. Then, suddenly, toward three o'clock in the morning, another alarm. Flames leaped up above the rocky wall of the Great Erie. Reflected from the clouds, they illuminated the atmosphere for a great distance. A crackling, as if of many burning trees, was heard. Had a fire spontaneously broken out? And to what cause was it due? Lightning could not have started the conflagration, for no thunder had been heard. True, there was plenty of material for fire. At this height the chain of the Blue Ridge is well wooded. But these flames were too sudden for any ordinary cause. An eruption! An eruption! The cry resounded from all sides. An eruption! The Great Erie was then indeed the crater of a volcano buried in the bowels of the mountains and after so many years, so many ages even, had it reawakened? Added to the flames, was a rain of stone and ashes about to follow? Were the lavas going to pour down torrents of molten fire, destroying everything in their passage, annihilating the towns, the villages, the farms, all this beautiful world of meadows, fields, and forests, even as far as Pleasant Garden and Morganton? This time the panic was overwhelming. Nothing could stop it. Women carrying their infants, crazed with terror, rushed along the eastward roads. Men, deserting their homes, made hurried bundles of their most precious belongings and set free their livestock—cows, sheep, pigs—which fled in all directions. What disorder resulted from this agglomeration, human and animal, under darkest night? amid forests, threatened by the fires of the volcano, along the border of marshes whose waters might be upheaved and overflow, with the earth itself threatening to disappear from under the feet of the fugitives, would they be in time to save themselves if a cascade of glowing lava came rolling down the slope of the mountain across their route? Nevertheless, some of the chief 
and shrewder farm owners were not swept away in this mad flight, which they did their best to restrain. Venturing within a mile of the mountain, they saw that the glare of the flames was decreasing. In truth, it hardly seemed that the region was immediately menaced by any further upheaval. No stones were being hurled into space. No torrent of lava was visible upon the slopes. No rumblings rose from the ground. There was no further manifestation of any seismic disturbance capable of overwhelming the land. At length, the flight of the fugitives ceased at a distance where they seemed secure from all danger. Then a few ventured back toward the mountain. Some farms were reoccupied before the break of day. By morning the crests of the Great Erie showed scarcely the least remnant of its cloud of smoke. The fires were certainly at an end, and if it were impossible to determine their cause, one might at least hope they would not break out again. It appeared possible that the Great Erie had not really been the theatre of volcanic phenomena at all. There was no further evidence that the neighbourhood was at the mercy either of eruptions or of earthquakes. Yet once more, about five o'clock, from beneath the ridge of the mountain, where the shadows of night still lingered, a strange noise swept across the air, a sort of whirring, accompanied by the beating of mighty wings. And had it been clear day, perhaps the farmers would have seen the passage of a mighty bird of prey, some monster of the skies, which, having risen from the great Erie, sped away toward the east. End of chapter This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne Chapter 2 I Reach Morganton The 27th of April, having left Washington the night before, I arrived at Raleigh, the capital of the state of North Carolina. Two days before, the head of the federal police had called me to his room. He was awaiting me with some impatience. "'John Strzok,' said he, "'are you still the man who on so many occasions has proven to me both his devotion and his ability?' "'Mr. Ward,' I answered with a bow, "'I cannot promise success, or even ability, but as to devotion, I assure you, it is yours.' "'I do not doubt it,' responded the chief and I will ask you instead this more exact question. Are you as fond of riddles as ever? As eager to penetrate into mysteries as I have known you before? I am, Mr. Ward. Good, Strock. then listen. Mr. Ward, a man of about fifty years, of great power and intellect, was fully master of the important position he filled. He had several times entrusted to me difficult missions which I had accomplished successfully, and which had won me his confidence. For several months past, however, he had found no occasion for my services. Therefore I awaited with impatience what he had to say. I did not doubt that his questioning implied a serious and important task for me. "'Doubtless you know,' said he, "'what has happened down in the Blue Ridge Mountains near Morganton.' 
Surely, Mr. Ward, the phenomena reported from there have been singular enough to arouse anyone's curiosity. They are singular, even remarkable, Strock. No doubt about that. But there is also reason to ask if these phenomena about the Great Eyrie are not a source of continued danger to the people there, if they are not forerunners of some disaster as terrible as it is mysterious. It is to be feared, sir. So we must know, Strock, what is inside of that mountain. If we are helpless in the face of some great force of nature, people must be warned in time of the danger which threatens them. It is clearly the duty of the authorities, Mr. Ward, responded I, to learn what is going on within there. True, Strock, but that presents great difficulties. Everyone reports that it is impossible to scale the precipices of the Great Erie and reach its interior. But has anyone ever attempted it with scientific appliances and under the best conditions? I doubt it, and believe a resolute attempt may bring success. Nothing is impossible, Mr. Ward. What we face here is merely a question of expense. We must not regard expense when we are seeking to reassure an entire population, or to preserve it from a catastrophe. There is another suggestion I would make to you. Perhaps this great Erie is not so inaccessible as is supposed. Perhaps a band of malefactors have secreted themselves there, gaining access by ways known only to themselves. What? You suspect that robbers— Perhaps I am wrong, Strock, and these strange sights and sounds have all had natural causes. Well, that is what we have to settle, and as quickly as possible. I have one question to ask. Go ahead, Strock. When the Great Erie has been visited, when we know the source of these phenomena, if there really is a crater there, and an eruption is imminent, can we avert it? No, Strock, but we can estimate the extent of the danger. If some volcano in the Alleghanies threatens North Carolina with a disaster similar to that of Martinique, buried beneath the outpourings of Montpellier, then these people must leave their homes. I hope, sir, there is no such widespread danger. I think not, Strock. It seems to me highly improbable that an active volcano exists in the Blue Ridge mountain chain. Our Appalachian mountain system is nowhere volcanic in its origin. But all these events cannot be without basis. In short, Struck, we have decided to make a strict inquiry into the phenomena of the Great Erie, to gather all the testimony, to question the people of the towns and farms. To do this, I have made choice of an agent in whom we have full confidence, and this agent is you, Strock. Good! I am ready, Mr. Ward, cried I, and be sure that I shall neglect nothing to bring you full information. I know it, Strock, and I will add that I regard you as specially fitted for the work. You will have a splendid opportunity to exercise, and I hope to satisfy your favorite passion of curiosity. As you say, sir, you will be free to act according to circumstances. As to expenses, if there seems reason to organize an ascension party, which will be costly, 
you have carte blanche i will act as seems best mr ward let me caution you to act with all possible discretion the people in the vicinity are already over-excited it will be well to move secretly do not mention the suspicions i have suggested to you and above all avoid arousing any fresh panic it is understood you will be accredited to the mayor of morganton who will assist you once more be prudent strock and acquaint no one with your mission unless it is absolutely necessary you have often given proofs of your intelligence and address and this time i feel assured you will succeed i asked him only when shall i start to-morrow to-morrow i shall leave washington and the day after i shall be at morganton how little suspicion had i of what the future had in store for me i returned immediately to my house where i made my preparations for departure and the next evening found me in raleigh there i passed the night and in the course of the next afternoon arrived at the railroad station of morganton morganton is but a small town built upon strata of the jurassic period particularly rich in coal its mines give it some prosperity it also has numerous unpleasant mineral waters so that the season there attracts many visitors around morganton is a rich farming country with broad fields of grain it lies in the midst of swamps covered with mosses and reeds evergreen forests rise high up the mountain slopes all that the region lacks is the wells of natural gas that invaluable natural source of power light and warmth so abundant in most of the allegheny valleys villages and farms are numerous up to the very borders of the mountain forests thus there were many thousands of people threatened if the great erie proved indeed a volcano if the convulsions of nature extended to pleasant garden and to morganton the mayor of morganton mr elias smith was a tall man vigorous and enterprising forty years old or more and of a health to defy all the doctors of the two americas he was a great hunter of bears and panthers beasts which may still be found in the wild gorges and mighty forests of the alleghanies mr smith was himself a rich landowner possessing several farms in the neighborhood even his most distant tenants received frequent visits from him indeed whenever his official duties did not keep him in his so-called home at morganton he was exploring the surrounding country irresistibly drawn by the instincts of the hunter i went at once to the house of mr smith he was expecting me having been warned by telegram he received me very frankly without any formality his pipe in his mouth a glass of brandy on the table a second glass was brought in by a servant and i had to drink to my host before beginning our interview mr ward sent you said he to me in a jovial tone good let us drink to mr ward's health i clinked glasses with him and drank in honor of the chief of police are now demanded elias smith what is worrying him 
At this I made known to the Mayor of Morganton the cause and the purpose of my mission in North Carolina. I assured him that my chief had given me full power, and would render me every assistance, financial and otherwise, to solve the riddle and relieve the neighborhood of its anxiety relative to the Great Erie. Elias Smith listened to me without uttering a word, but not without several times refilling his glass and mine. While he puffed steadily at his pipe, the close attention which he gave me was beyond question. I saw his cheeks flush at times, and his eyes gleam under their bushy brows. Evidently the chief magistrate of Morganton was uneasy about Great Erie, and would be as eager as I to discover the cause of these phenomena. When I had finished my communication, Elias Smith gazed at me for some moments in silence. Then he said, softly, So at Washington they wish to know what the Great Erie hides within its circuit. Yes, Mr. Smith. And you also? I do. So do I, Mr. Strock. He and I were as one in our curiosity. You will understand, added he, knocking the cinders from his pipe, that as a landowner I am much interested in these stories of the Great Erie, and as mayor I wish to protect my constituents. A double reason, I commented, to stimulate you to discover the cause of these extraordinary occurrences. Without doubt, my dear Mr. Smith, they have appeared to you as inexplicable and as threatening as to your people. Inexplicable, certainly, Mr. Strock, for on my part I do not believe it possible that the Great Erie can be a volcano. The Alleghenies are nowhere of volcanic origins. I myself and our immediate district have never found any geological traces of scoria or lava or any eruptive rock whatever. I do not think, therefore, that Morganton can possibly be threatened from such a source. You really think not, Mr. Smith? Certainly. But these tremblings of the earth that have been felt in the neighborhood. Yes, these tremblings, these tremblings, repeated Mr. Smith, shaking his head. But in the first place, is it certain that there have been tremblings? At the moment when the flames showed most sharply, I was on my farm of Wilden, less than a mile from the Great Erie. There was certainly a tumult in the air, but I felt no quivering of the earth. But in the report sent to Mr. Ward, reports made under the impulse of the panic, interrupted the mayor of Morganton, I said nothing of any earth tremors in mine. But as to the flames which rose clearly above the crest? Yes, as to those, Mr. Strock, that is different. I saw them, saw them with my own eyes, and the clouds certainly reflected them for miles around. Moreover, noises certainly came from the crater of the Great Erie, hissings, as if a great boiler were letting off steam. You have reliable testimony of this? Yes, the evidence of my own ears. And in the midst of all this noise, Mr. Smith, did you believe that you heard that most remarkable of all the phenomena, a sound like the flapping of great wings? 
I thought so, Mr. Strock, but what mighty bird could this be, which sped away after the flames had died down, and what wings could ever make such tremendous sounds? I therefore seriously question if this must not have been a deception of my imagination. The Great Eyrie a refuge for unknown monsters of the sky? Would they not have been seen long since, soaring above their immense nest of stone? In short, there is in all this a mystery which has not yet been solved. But we will solve it, Mr. Smith, if you will give me your aid. Surely, Mr. Strock. Tomorrow we will start our campaign. Tomorrow. And on that word the mayor and I separated. I went to a hotel, and established myself for a stay which might be indefinitely prolonged. Then, having dined, and written to Mr. Ward, I saw Mr. Smith again in the afternoon, and arranged to leave Morganton with him at daybreak. Our first purpose was to undertake the ascent of the mountain, with the aid of two experienced guides. These men had ascended Mount Mitchell and others of the highest peaks of the Blue Ridge. They had never, however, attempted the Great Erie, knowing that its walls of inaccessible cliffs defended it on every side. Moreover, before the recent startling occurrences, the Great Erie had not particularly attracted the attention of tourists. Mr. Smith knew the two guides personally as men daring, skillful, and trustworthy. They would stop at no obstacle, and we were resolved to follow them through everything. Moreover, Mr. Smith remarked at the last that perhaps it was no longer as difficult as formerly to penetrate within the Great Erie. "'And why?' asked I. "'Because a huge block has recently broken away from the mountain's side, and perhaps it has left a practicable path or entrance.' "'That would be a fortunate chance, Mr. Smith.' "'We shall know all about it, Mr. Strock, no later than to-morrow.' Till tomorrow, then. End of chapter. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 3 The Great Eyrie. The next day at dawn. Elias Smith and I left Morganton by a road which, winding along the left bank of the Catawba River, led to the village of Pleasant Garden. The guides accompanied us, Harry Horn, a man of thirty, and James Brooke, aged twenty-five. They were both natives of the region, and in constant demand among the tourists who climbed the peaks of the Blue Ridge and Cumberland Mountains. A light wagon with two good horses was provided to carry us to the foot of the range. It contained provisions for two or three days, beyond which our trip surely would not be protracted. Mr. Smith had shown himself a generous provider both in meats and in liquors. As to water, the mountain springs would furnish it in abundance, increased by the heavy rains frequent in that region during springtime. It is needless to ask that the mayor of Morganton, in his role of hunter, had brought along his gun and his dog Nisko, who gambled joyously about the wagon. Nisko, however, was to remain behind at the farm at Wilden, when we attempted our ascent. He could not possibly follow us to the Great Erie with its cliffs to scale and its crevasses to cross. 
The day was beautiful. The fresh air in that climate is still cool of an April morning. A few fleecy clouds sped rapidly overhead, driven by a light breeze which swept across the long plains from the distant Atlantic. The sun peeping forth at intervals illumined all the fresh young verdure of the countryside. An entire world animated the woods through which we passed. From before our equipage fled squirrels, field mice, parakeets of brilliant colors and deafening loquacity. Opossums passed in hurried leaps, bearing their young in their pouches. Myriads of birds were scattered amid the foliage of banyans, palms, and masses of rhododendrons, so luxuriant that their thickets were impenetrable. We arrived that evening at Pleasant Garden, where we were comfortably located for the night with the mayor of the town, a particular friend of Mr. Smith. Pleasant Garden proved little more than a village, but its mayor gave us a warm and generous reception, and we supped pleasantly in his charming home, which stood beneath the shades of some giant beech-trees. Naturally the conversation turned upon our attempt to explore the interior of the Great Erie. "'You are right,' said our host. "'Until we all know what is hidden within there, our people will remain uneasy.' "'Has nothing new occurred?' I asked, since the last appearance of flames above the Great Erie. "'Nothing, Mr. Strock. From Pleasant Garden we can see the entire crest of the mountain. Not a suspicious noise has come down to us. Not a spark has risen. If a legion of devils is in hiding there, they must have finished their infernal cookery and soared away to some other haunt.' "'Devils!' cried Mr. Smith. Well, I hope they have not decamped without leaving some traces of their occupation, some parings of hoofs or horns or tails. We shall find them out. On the morrow, the twenty-ninth of April, we started again at dawn. By the end of this second day we expected to reach the farm of Wilden at the foot of the mountain. The country was much the same as before, except that our road led more steeply upward. Woods and marshes alternated, although the latter grew sparser, being drained by the sun as we approached the higher levels. The country was also less populous. There were only a few little hamlets, almost lost beneath the beech-trees, a few lonely farms, abundantly watered by the many streams that rushed downward toward the Catawba River. The smaller birds and beasts grew yet more numerous. I am much tempted to take my gun, said Mr. Smith, and to go off with Nisko. This will be the first time that I have passed here without trying my luck with the partridges and hares. The good beasts will not recognize me, but not only have we plenty of provisions, but we have a bigger chase on hand today, the chase of a mystery. And let us hope, added I, we do not come back disappointed hunters. In the afternoon, the whole chain of the Blue Ridge stretched before us at a distance of only six miles. The mountain crests were sharply outlined against the clear sky. Well wooded at the base, they grew more bare and showed only stunted evergreens toward the summit. There the scraggly trees, grotesquely twisted, gave to the rocky heights a bleak and bizarre appearance. Here and there the ridge rose in sharp peaks. 
On our right the black dome, nearly seven thousand feet high, reared its gigantic head, sparkling at times above the clouds. "'Have you ever climbed that dome, Mr. Smith?' I asked. "'No,' answered he, "'but I am told that it is a very difficult ascent. A few mountaineers have climbed it, but they report that it has no outlook commanding the crater of the Great Erie." "'That is so,' said the guide, Harry Horn. "'I have tried it myself.' "'Perhaps,' suggested I, "'the weather was unfavourable.' On the contrary, Mr. Strock, it was unusually clear. But the wall of the Great Erie on that side rose so high, it completely hid the interior. Forward! cried Mr. Smith. I shall not be sorry to set foot where no person has ever stepped or even looked before. Certainly on this day the Great Erie looked tranquil enough. As we gazed upon it there rose from its heights neither smoke nor flame. Toward five o'clock our expedition halted at the Wilden Farm, where the tenants warmly welcomed their landlord. The farmer assured us that nothing notable had happened about the Great Erie for some time. We supped at a common table with all the people of the farm, and our sleep that night was sound and wholly untroubled by premonitions of the future. On the morrow, before break of day, we set out for the ascent of the mountain. The height of the Great Erie scarce exceeds five thousand feet, a modest altitude, often surpassed in this section of the Alleghanies. As we were already more than three thousand feet above sea level, the fatigue of the ascent could not be great. A few hours should suffice to bring us to the crest of the crater. Of course, difficulties might present themselves, precipices to scale, cliffs and breaks in the ridge which might necessitate painful and even dangerous detours. This was the unknown, the spur to our attempt. As I said, our guides knew no more than we upon this point. What made me anxious was, of course, the common report that the Great Erie was wholly inaccessible. But this remained unproven, and then there was the new chance that a fallen block had left a breach in the rocky wall. At last, said Mr. Smith to me, after lighting the first pipe of the twenty or more which he smoked each day, we are well started. As to whether the ascent will take more or less time— In any case, Mr. Smith, interrupted I, you and I are fully resolved to pursue our quest to the end. Fully resolved, Mr. Strock. My chief has charged me to snatch the secret from this demon of the Great Erie. We will snatch it from him, willing or unwilling, vowed Mr. Smith, calling heaven to witness. Even if we have to search the very bowels of the mountain. As it may happen, then, said I, that our excursion will be prolonged beyond today, it will be well to look to our provisions. Be easy, Mr. Strock. Our guides have food for two days in their knapsacks, besides what we carry ourselves. Moreover, though I left my brave Nisko at the farm, I have my gun. Game will be plentiful in the woods and gorges of the lower part of the mountain, and perhaps at the top we shall find a fire to cook it, already lighted. Already lighted, Mr. Smith? And why not, Mr. Strock? These flames— 
these superb flames which have so terrified our country folk. Is their fire absolutely cold? Is no spark to be found beneath their ashes? And then, if this is truly a crater, is the volcano so wholly extinct that we cannot find there a single ember? Bah! This would be but a poor volcano, if it hasn't enough fire even to cook an egg or roast a potato. Come, I repeat, we shall see. We shall see. At that point of the investigation I had, I confess, no opinion formed. I had my orders to examine the Great Erie. If it proved harmless, I would announce it, and people would be reassured. But at heart, I must admit, I had the very natural desire of a man possessed by the demon of curiosity. I should be glad, both for my own sake, and for the renown which would attach to my mission, if the Great Erie proved the centre of the most remarkable phenomena, of which I would discover the cause. Our ascent began in this order. The two guides went in front to seek out the most practicable paths. Elias Smith and I followed more leisurely. We mounted by a narrow, and not very steep, gorge amid rocks and trees. A tiny stream trickled downward under our feet. During the rainy season, or after a heavy shower, the water doubtless bounded from rock to rock in tumultuous cascades. But it evidently was fed only by the rain, for now we could scarcely trace its course. It could not be the outlet of any lake within the Great Erie. After an hour of climbing, the slope became so steep that we had to turn, now to the right, now to the left, and our progress was much delayed. Soon the gorge became wholly impracticable. Its cliff-like sides offered no sufficient foothold. We had to cling by branches to crawl upon our knees. At this rate the top would not be reached before sundown. "'Faith!' cried Mr. Smith, stopping for breath. I realize why the climbers of the Great Erie have been few, so few, that it has never been ascended within my knowledge. <sighs> the fact is, I responded, that it would be much toil for very little profit, and if we had not special reasons to persist in our attempt. You have never said a truer word, declared Harry Horn. My comrade and I have scaled the Black Dome several times, but we have never met such obstacles as these. The difficulties seem almost impassable, added James Brooke. The question now was to determine to which side we should turn for a new route. To right, as to left, arose impenetrable masses of trees and bushes. In truth, even the scaling of cliffs would have been more easy. Perhaps if we could get above this wooded slope we could advance with surer foot. Now we could only go ahead blindly, and trust to the instincts of our two guides. James Brooke was especially useful. I believe that that gallant lad would have equaled a monkey in lightness and a wild goat in agility. Unfortunately, neither Elias Smith nor I were able to climb where he could. However, when it is a matter of real need with me, I trust I shall never be backward, being resolute by nature and well-trained in bodily exercise. Where James Brooke went, I was determined to go, also, though it might cost me some uncomfortable falls. 
but it was not the same with the first magistrate of Morganton, less young, less vigorous, larger, stouter, and less persistent than we others. Plainly he made every effort not to retard our progress, but he panted like a seal, and soon I insisted on his stopping to rest. In short, it was evident that the ascent of the Great Erie would require far more time than we had estimated. We had expected to reach the foot of the rocky wall before eleven o'clock, but we now saw that midday would still find us several hundred feet below it. Toward ten o'clock, after repeated attempts to discover some more practicable route, after numberless turnings and returnings, one of the guides gave the signal to halt. We found ourselves at last on the upper border of the heavy wood. The trees, more thinly spaced, permitted us a glimpse upward to the base of the rocky wall which constituted the true Great Erie. Phew! exclaimed Mr. Smith, leaning against a mighty pine tree. A little respite, ha, a little repose, and even a little repast would not go badly. We will rest an hour, said I. Yes, after working our lungs and our legs, we will make our stomachs work. We were all agreed on this point. A rest would certainly freshen us. Our only cause for inquietude was now the appearance of the precipitous slope above us. We looked up towards one of those bare strips called in that region slides. Amid this loose earth, these yielding stones, and these abrupt rocks, there was no roadway. Harry Horn said to his comrade, "'It will not be easy.' "'Perhaps impossible,' responded Brooke. Their comments caused me secret uneasiness. If I returned without even having scaled the mountain, my mission would be a complete failure, without speaking of the torture to my curiosity. And when I stood again before Mr. Ward, shamed and confused, I should cut but a sorry figure.' We opened our knapsacks and lunched moderately on bread and cold meat. Our repast finished, in less than half an hour, Mr. Smith sprang up eager to push forward once more. James Brooke took the lead, and we had only to follow him as best we could. We advanced slowly. Our guides did not attempt to conceal their doubt and hesitation. Soon Horn left us and went far ahead to spy out which road promised most chance of success. Twenty minutes later he returned and led us onward toward the northwest. It was on this side that the Black Dome rose at a distance of three or four miles. Our path was still difficult and painful. Amid the sliding stones, held in place only occasionally by wiry brushes. At length, after a weary struggle, we gained some two hundred feet further upward, and found ourselves facing a great gash, which broke the earth at this spot. Here and there were scattered roots, recently uptorn, branches broken off, huge stones reduced to powder, as if an avalanche had rushed down this flank of the mountain. That must be the path taken by the huge block which broke away from the great Erie, commented James Brooke. "'No doubt,' answered Mr. Smith, "'and I think we had better follow the road that it has made for us.' It was indeed this gash that Harry Horn had selected for our ascent. 
our feet found lodgment in the firmer earth which had resisted the passage of the monster rock. Our task thus became much easier, and our progress was in a straight line upward, so that toward half-past eleven we reached the upper border of the slide. Before us, less than a hundred feet away, but towering a hundred feet straight upwards in the air, rose the rocky wall which formed the final crest, the last defense of the Great Eyrie. From this side, the summit of the wall showed capriciously irregular, rising in rude towers and jagged needles. At one point the outline appeared to be an enormous eagle silhouetted against the sky, just ready to take flight. Upon this side, at least, the precipice was insurmountable. "'Rushed a minute,' said Mr. Smith, "'and we will see if it is possible to make our way around the base of this cliff.' "'At any rate,' said Harry Horne, "'the great block must have fallen from this part of the cliff, and has left no breach for entering.' They were both right. We must seek entrance elsewhere. After a rest of ten minutes, we clambered up close to the foot of the wall, and began to make a circuit of its base. Assuredly the great Erie now took on to my eyes an aspect absolutely fantastic. Its heights seemed peopled by dragons and huge monsters. If chimeras, griffins, and all the creations of mythology had appeared to guard it, I should have been scarcely surprised. With great difficulty, and not without danger, we continued our tour of this circumvallation, where it seemed that nature had worked as man does, with careful regularity. Nowhere was there any break in the fortification, nowhere a fault in the strata by which one might clamber up. Always this mighty wall, a hundred feet in height. After an hour and a half of this laborious circuit, we regained our starting place. I could not conceal my disappointment, and Mr. Smith was not less chagrined than I. "'A thousand devils!' cried he. "'We know no better than before what is inside this confounded Great Eyrie, nor even if it is a crater.' "'Volcano or not,' said I, "'there are no suspicious noises now. Neither smoke nor flame rises above it. Nothing whatever threatens an eruption.' This was true. A profound silence reigned around us, and a perfectly clear sky shone overhead. We tasted the perfect calm of great altitudes. It was worth noting that the circumference of the huge wall was about twelve or fifteen hundred feet. As to the space enclosed within, we could scarce reckon that without knowing the thickness of the encompassing wall. The surroundings were absolutely deserted. Probably not a living creature ever mounted to this height, except the few birds of prey which soared high above us. Our watches showed three o'clock, and Mr. Smith cried in disgust, "'What is the use of stopping here all day? We shall learn nothing more. We must make a start, Mr. Strock, if we want to get back to Pleasant Garden to-night.' I made no answer, and did not move from where I was seated, so he called again. "'Come, Mr. Strock, you don't answer.' In truth, it cut me deeply to abandon our effort, to descend the slope without having achieved my mission. I felt an imperious need of persisting. My curiosity had redoubled. But what could I do? 
Could I tear open this unyielding earth? Overleap the mighty cliff? Throwing one last defiant glare at the Great Eyrie, I followed my companions. The return was effected without great difficulty. We had only to slide down where we had so laboriously scrambled up. Before five o'clock we descended the last slopes of the mountain, and the farmer of Wilden welcomed us to a much-needed meal. "'Then you didn't get inside?' said he. "'No,' responded Mr. Smith. "'And I believe that the inside exists only in the imagination of our country folk.' At half-past eight our carriage drew up before the house of the mayor of Pleasant Garden, where we passed the night. While I strove vainly to sleep, I asked myself if I should not stop there in the village and organize a new ascent. But what better chance had it of succeeding than the first? The wisest course was, doubtless, to return to Washington and consult Mr. Ward. So the next day, having rewarded our two guides, I took leave of Mr. Smith at Morganton, and that same evening left by train for Washington. End of chapter. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 4 a meeting of the automobile club was the mystery of the great eyrie to be solved some day by chances beyond our imagining that was known only to the future and was the solution a matter of the first importance that was beyond doubt since the safety of the people of western carolina perhaps depended upon it yet a fortnight after my return to washington Public attention was wholly distracted from this problem by another very different in nature, but equally astonishing. Toward the middle of that month of May, the newspapers of Pennsylvania informed their readers of some strange occurrences in different parts of the state. On the roads which radiated from Philadelphia, the chief city, there circulated an extraordinary vehicle, of which no one could describe the form, or the nature or even the size, so rapidly did it rush past. It was an automobile, all were agreed on that, but as to what motor drove it, only imagination could say, and when the popular imagination is aroused, what limit is there to its hypotheses? At that period the most improved automobiles, whether driven by steam, gasoline, or electricity, could not accomplish much more than sixty miles an hour a speed that the railroads, with their most rapid expresses, scarce exceed on the best lines of America and Europe. Now this new automobile which was astonishing the world travelled at more than double this speed. It is needless to add that such a rate constituted an extreme danger on the high roads, as much so for vehicles as for pedestrians. This rushing mass, coming like a thunderbolt, preceded by a formidable rumbling, caused a whirlwind which tore the branches from the trees along the road, terrified the animals browsing in adjoining fields, and scattered and killed the birds which could not resist the suction of the tremendous air-currents engendered by its passage. And a bizarre detail to which the newspapers drew particular attention, the surface of the roads was scarcely even scratched by the wheels of the apparition 
which left behind it no such ruts as are usually made by heavy vehicles. At most there was a light touch, a mere brushing of the dust. It was only the tremendous speed which raised behind the vehicle such whirlwinds of dust. "'It is probable,' commented the New York Herald, "'that the extreme rapidity of motion destroys the weight.' Naturally there were protests from all sides. It was impossible to permit the mad speed of this apparition which threatened to overthrow and destroy everything in its passage, equipages and people. But how could it be stopped? No one knew to whom the vehicle belonged, nor whence it came, nor whither it went. It was seen but for an instant as it darted forward like a bullet in its dizzy flight. How could one seize a cannon-ball in the air? as it leaped from the mouth of the gun. I repeat, there was no evidence as to the character of the propelling engine. It left behind it no smoke, no steam, no odor of gasoline or any other oil. It seemed probable, therefore, that the vehicle ran by electricity, and that its accumulators were of an unknown model, using some unknown fluid. The public imagination, highly excited, readily accepted every sort of rumor about this mysterious automobile. It was said to be a supernatural car. It was driven by a spectre, by one of the chauffeurs of hell, a goblin from another world, a monster escaped from some mythological menagerie, in short, the devil in person, who could defy all human intervention, having at his command invisible and infinite satanic powers. But even Satan himself had no right to run at such a speed over the roads of the United States without a special permit, without a number on his car, and without a regular license. And it was certain that not a single municipality had given him permission to go two hundred miles an hour. Public security demanded that some means be found to unmask the secret of this terrible chauffeur. Moreover, it was not only Pennsylvania that served as the theatre of his sportive eccentricities. The police reported his appearance in other states, in Kentucky near Frankfurt, in Ohio near Columbus, in Tennessee near Nashville, in Missouri near Jefferson, and finally in Illinois in the neighborhood of Chicago. The alarm having been given, it became the duty of the authorities to take steps against this public danger. To arrest or even to halt an apparition moving at such a speed was scarcely practicable. A better way would be to erect across the roads solid gateways with which the flying machine must come in contact, sooner or later, and be smashed into a thousand pieces. "'Nonsense!' declared the incredulous. "'This madman would know well how to circle around such obstructions.' "'And if necessary,' added others, "'the machine would leap over the barriers.' and, if he is indeed the devil, he has, as a former angel, presumably preserved his wings, and so he will take to flight. But this last was but the suggestion of foolish old gossips who did not stop to study the matter. For if the king of Hades possessed a pair of wings, why did he obstinately persist in running around on the earth at the risk of crushing his own subjects, when he might more easily have hurled himself through space as free as a bird? Such was the situation when, in the last week of May, a fresh event occurred, which seemed to show that the United States was indeed helpless, 
in the hands of some unapproachable monster. And after the new world, would not the old in its turn be desecrated by the mad career of this remarkable automobilist? The following occurrence was reported in all the newspapers of the Union, and with what comments and outcries it is easy to imagine. A race was to be held by the Automobile Club of Wisconsin, over the roads of that state of which Madison is the capital. The route laid out formed an excellent track, about two hundred miles in length, starting from Prairie du Chien on the western frontier, passing by Madison, and ending a little above Milwaukee on the borders of Lake Michigan. Except for the Japanese road between Nikko and Namode, bordered by giant cypresses, there is no better track in the world than this of Wisconsin. It runs straight and level as an arrow for sometimes fifty miles at a stretch. Many and noted were the machines entered for this great race. Every kind of motor vehicle was permitted to compete, even motorcycles as well as automobiles. The machines were of all makes and nationalities. The sum of the different prizes reached fifty thousand dollars, so that the race was sure to be desperately contested. New records were expected to be made. Calculating on the maximum speed hitherto attained, of perhaps eighty miles an hour, this international contest covering two hundred miles would last about three hours. And, to avoid all danger, the state authorities of Wisconsin had forbidden all other traffic between Prairie du Chien and Milwaukee during three hours on the morning of the 30th of May. Thus, if there were any accidents, those who suffered would be themselves to blame. There was an enormous crowd, and it was not composed only of the people of Wisconsin. Many thousands gathered from the neighboring states of Illinois, Michigan, Iowa, Indiana, and even from New York. Among the sportsmen assembled were many foreigners, English, French, Germans, and Austrians, each nationality, of course, supporting the chauffeurs of its land. Moreover, as this was the United States, the country of the greatest gamblers of the world, bets were made of every sort and of enormous amounts the start was to be made at eight o'clock in the morning and to avoid crowding and the accidents which must result from it the automobiles were to follow each other at two-minute intervals along the roads whose borders were black with spectators the first ten racers numbered by lot were dispatched between eight o'clock and twenty minutes past unless there was some disastrous accident some of these machines would surely arrive at the goal by eleven o'clock. The others followed in order. An hour and a half had passed. There remained but a single contestant at Prairie du Chien. Word was sent back and forth by telephone every five minutes as to the order of the racers. Midway between Madison and Milwaukee, the lead was held by a machine of Renault Brothers, four-cylindered, of twenty horsepower, and with Michelin tires. It was closely followed by a Harvard-Watson car, and by a Dion Bouton. Some accidents had already occurred. Other machines were hopelessly behind. Not more than a dozen would contest the finish. Several chauffeurs had been injured, but not seriously. And even had they been killed, the death of men is but a detail, not considered of great importance in that astonishing country of America. Naturally, the excitement became more intense as one approached the finishing line near Milwaukee. 
there was assembled the most curious, the most interested, and there the passions of the moment were unchained. By ten o'clock it was evident that the first prize, twenty thousand dollars, lay between five machines, two American, two French, and one English. Imagine, therefore, the fury with which bets were being made under the influence of national pride. The regular bookmakers could scarcely meet the demands of those who wished to wager. Offers and amounts were hurled from lip to lip with feverish rapidity. One to three on the Harvard Watson! One to two on the Dion Botan! Even money on the Renault! These cries rang along the line of spectators at each new announcement from the telephones. Suddenly, at half-past nine by the town clock of Prairie du Chien, two miles beyond that town was heard a tremendous noise and a rumbling which proceeded from the midst of a flying cloud of dust, accompanied by shrieks like those of a naval siren. Scarcely had the crowds time to draw to one side to escape a destruction which would have included hundreds of victims. The cloud swept by like a hurricane. No one could distinguish what it was that passed with such speed. There was no exaggeration in saying that its rate was at least one hundred and fifty miles an hour. The apparition passed and disappeared in an instant, leaving behind it a long train of white dust, as an express locomotive leaves behind a train of smoke. Evidently it was an automobile with a most extraordinary motor. If it maintained this arrow-like speed, it would reach the contestants in the forefront of the race. It would pass them with this speed double their own. It would arrive first at the goal. And then from all parts arose an uproar, as soon as the spectators had nothing more to fear. It is that infernal machine! Yes, the one the police cannot stop. But has not been heard of for a fortnight. But it was supposed to be done for, destroyed, gone forever. It is a devil's car, driven by hell-fire, and with Satan driving. In truth, if he were not the devil, who could this mysterious chauffeur be, driving with this unbelievable velocity, his no less mysterious machine? At least it was beyond doubt that this was the same machine which had already attracted so much attention. If the police believed that they had frightened it away, that it was never to be heard of more, well, the police were mistaken, which happens in America as elsewhere. The first stunned moment of surprise having passed, many people rushed to the telephones to warn those further along the route of the danger which menaced not only the people, but also the automobiles scattered along the road. When this terrible madman arrived like an avalanche, they would be smashed to pieces, ground into powder, annihilated. And from the collision might not the destroyer himself emerge safe and sound? He must be so adroit, this chauffeur of chauffeurs, he must handle his machine with such perfection of eye and hand, that he knew, no doubt, how to escape from every situation. Fortunately, the Wisconsin authorities had taken such precautions that the road would be clear except for contesting automobiles. But what right had this machine among them? And what said the racers themselves, who, warned by telephone, had to sheer aside from the road in their struggle for the grand prize? By their estimate, this amazing vehicle was going at least one hundred and thirty miles an hour. Fast as was their speed, it shot by them at such a rate 
that they could hardly make out even the shape of the machine, a sort of lengthened spindle, probably not over thirty feet long. Its wheels spun with such velocity that they could scarce be seen. For the rest, the machine left behind it neither smoke nor scent. As for the driver, hidden in the interior of his machine, he had been quite invisible. He remained as unknown as when he had first appeared on the various roads throughout the country. Milwaukee was promptly warned of the coming of this interloper. Fancy the excitement the news caused! The immediate purpose agreed upon was to stop this projectile, to erect across its route an obstacle against which it would smash into a thousand pieces. But was there time? Would not the machine appear at any moment? And what need was there, since the track ended on the edge of Lake Michigan, and so the vehicle would be forced to stop there anyway, unless its supernatural driver could ride the water as well as the land? Here, also, as all along the route, the most extravagant suggestions were offered. Even those who would not admit that the mysterious chauffeur must be Satan in person allowed that he might be some monster escaped from the fantastic visions of the apocalypse. And now there were no longer minutes to wait. Any second might bring the expected apparition. It was not yet eleven o'clock when a rumbling was heard far down the track and the dust rose in violent whirlwinds. Harsh whistlings shrieked through the air warning all to give passage to the monster. It did not slacken speed at the finish. Lake Michigan was not half a mile beyond, and the machine must certainly be hurled into the water. Could it be that the mechanician was no longer master of his mechanism? There could be little doubt of it. Like a shooting star, the vehicle flashed through Milwaukee. When it had passed the city, would it plunge itself to destruction in the waters of Lake Michigan? At any rate, when it disappeared at a slight bend in the road, no trace was to be found of its passage. End of chapter.